Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Okay, welcome to the Wholehearted Healer podcast. This week, I'm really thrilled to have Sophie Strand as a guest, um, and I can't wait to get into a conversation with her. Sophie is someone who I found in one of those sort of happenstance ways on Facebook, and her writing is some of the most alive that I've ever read. And in this time of great shifting and changing, my sense is that Sophie is one of the one of the new storytellers, one of the people who is going to usher in new myth and meaning for us. And so, um, welcome, Sophie. That was a very generous introduction. Thank you so much, Avin. Thank you. So for those who don't know you, I just want to give a little introduction, um, a little bit of your background. So Sophie is a writer based in Hudson Valley, and she focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology, which is thrilling to me. Um, She has published three books of poetry, including Love Song to a Blue God and Those Other Flowers to Come and finally and finally, The Approach. And she has two upcoming books that I cannot wait to read. The first is a book of essays entitled The Flowering Wand, Lunar Kings, Lichenized Lovers, Trans Species Magicians and Rhizomatic Harpists Heal the, the Masculine. Um, and that's coming in the fall of this year. And she also has some historical fiction coming out, which reimagines the Gospels, entitled The Madonna Secret. And so she is prolific and I'm really, really grateful to have you here with us today, Sophie. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yes, I think maybe to get to get us started, your language your poetry, your essays, it's saturated. It's saturated with place and this aliveness within and around you. And I just wonder if you can share your origins a little bit. Like where were you planted? How did you how did you yeah. really unique your unique thinker? Well thank you so much. Um I'm I'm a unique thinker and I'm also not an individual thinker. I'm a compost heap of the microbes that are thinking me, the people I've read, the people who've supported me during moments of illness and hardship. So I am a compost heap of many different beings. Um I was born in the city to writer parents. My parents have always written inside and outside of religion and spirituality. Um, And my dad is an ex-Buddhist monk. He was the head monk at um, the Zen Buddhist monastery in New York City for a long time. My mom is an ex-Catholic pagan witch. Um, So I was raised, um, I think a lot of the texture, the spiritual and also um, more than human texture that comes from my work as I was, then we moved up to the Hudson Valley. And I was raised in the shadow of Overlook Mountain in um, around salamanders and mountain lions and bobcats. And my parents adopted every animal that came to our door. And we rehabilitated 
possums and swans and all sorts of beings. So I was really raised. And then, of course, also because my parents worked inside of um, spirituality and religion, we had theologians and rabbis and Theravadan Buddhist monks and writers and thinkers in the house all the time, alongside like a Chinese goose who was my best friend and dog who came into the house. So um, <laughs> that's definitely the, um, the basis, the kind of, you know, the sedimented um, material that has made me who I am, I think. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Yeah. What a unique and gorgeously rich upbringing. It sounds like, I don't know, there's a movie and a book in there. In the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, I was, you know, I did a deep dive into your reading and one thing that I really loved, I feel that we're in, I use the term liminal space a lot. Yeah. To me, that means sort of, the space between no longer and not yet when the ground below us feels less solid. Yeah. And, and I loved what you wrote about, you say, the only thing I'm certain of right now is that I am constituted by a generous uncertainty. Yeah. And so I wonder if you could speak to this place, this moment that we're in that, um, this generous uncertainty, this, not, you know, no longer, not yet. We're not, we're in this place of unknowing. I think that so much of our existence is unknown and, and that a certain Cartesian material reductionist approach to science and to technology has tried to relegate this to the shadows so that it can um, gain credibility and not admit that most of what it does is, um, um, precipitated by and constituted by absential, absential causations. Like, you know, there's absence at our, we're mostly constituted by empty space. Dark matter is most of the universe. And so it's uncertainty that actually constitutes us in our world. And yet it's the thing that we're most afraid to spend time inside of that. We're always trying to create stories and stable value systems that make us feel secure, even when they don't actually correctly map the messy, complicated, culpable, entangled existence that we're inside of right now. Um, and, you know, very personally, I have a genetic illness that is incurable. And I have um, found myself inside of a situation that doesn't um, fit into the cultural narratives of how things are supposed to progress, how healing is supposed to happen, how the pace at which I'm supposed to do work and show up. Um, and so I've also found myself oftentimes in an uncertain zone, a zone that's hard to language and also is illegible to the culture. Um, but interestingly enough, it's in these uncertain places that miracles sprout. When you think you know everything, you only get what you expect. And sometimes what you really want is not what you expect. It's, it's bigger than what you could expect. So I think uncertainty just states miracles. It's a place where things that are bigger and better than you could have ever expected can emerge. Yeah. I love that. And you know, something that's really exciting for me about your work as well is the way that you interweave and intertwine science and spirituality and myth and story. And that Quantum science is showing us that, right? That if that that the magic is in the unknown. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah. not necessarily in the places where all the answers are, or in the bright light, or um, it's it's can be in shadow. And I feel like collectively at this moment, we're 
we're in a moment of shadow, right? There's, yeah. there's a lot going on in our world. Um, you write, you wrote something. So, so certain lines that you wrote really stood out to me. And when in talking about, I think it was maybe you were writing about your illness. You say yeah. the wounds don't show up in our bodies; they show up in our ecosystems. Yeah. And I wonder if you could speak to that. Well, I have a very personal version of it, and then I have a slightly um, more expanded, generous um, offering. One is I. So I was very ill from the age of 16 onwards and was in and out of, you know, experimental trials and medications, different diagnoses that would hold and then fall apart. And alongside all of this uncertainty, I was fascinated by rhizomatic fungi and by fungi and mushrooms and loved them and um, found ways to interweave them into all of my studies and writing. And then there came this critical confluence moment, confluence being when two bodies of water connect, mm -hmm. when I got a diagnosis of connective tissue disease and also began to realize that fungi were the connective tissue of ecosystems and of forests and soil. And I, it was a moment that was extraordinarily miraculous because I think receiving this diagnosis where there is no cure, <laughs> where there are many things that can go wrong, on the one hand, it was good to know what was wrong. On the other hand, it was very scary. And in a moment when I could have gone inwards and been paralyzed and, and shut myself off, isolated myself from my friends and my family, from my ecosystem, fungi gave me that bridge, that portal, you know, their wounding because pollution and um, anthropogenic deve development, clear cutting, all of these things are degrading fungal communities, which then of course degrade our ability to grow mineral um, rich food, to have forests, to have biodiverse communities of bacteria. Um, so the wounding of the fungi and my wounding is of my connective tissue felt kinned. They were, they, they were mirror images of each other. So instead of becoming self-obsessed and, and paralyzed, I could flow into a more than human mind and think about fungi as being this portal into another being's hardship. You know, how could I protect underground systems? How could I learn more about how fungi decay things in order to make room for more beings to come in, in, into existence? Um, and the thing that I always want to offer to people is we have a lot of wounding right now. Everybody does in different ways. It's important when we approach people to always know that there's something secret. Like there's, you know, we're all coming with different baggage, but that baggage can also be a compass direction outward out of the human perspective into something else. So it's important when we have wounding to ask if it's the exact shape of something else that needs our help. Yeah. That's really beautiful too, because it draws us sometimes when we are wounded or dealing with our own stuff, we can get very small and isolated and separate when really it's the yeah. time that connection and moving outward is exactly what we need. And so this idea of looking to the natural world to see parallels, you know, as above, so below, it's so, it's so profound and that you found it in mycelium and mushrooms and, um, you know, I, I went through medical school, I'm a physician, and I remember the first time that I was dissecting in gross anatomy and I saw fascia. And mm. I saw fascia in, in a, living be, a living body when I was doing surgery. And fascia mm. is this gauzy, gorgeous, um, 
maze and map throughout the body that I think is under undercalled in its importance in connection, yeah. you know, connecting everything. And I, I think that your ideas about mycelium are really interesting. And can you speak to your ideas about mycelium and myth? And because <laughs> I think that's one of the most unique ideas I've heard as well. Would you explain, you know, your ideas about that a little bit? Sure. Um, it's so funny because I came up with this idea many years ago before mushrooms were trendy and everyone thought it was dumb. So it's so funny to watch. It's a great indicator of just like stick with what you love because maybe someday people will care about it too. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I love to think about, I, I studied in college and I've written about um, extensively the movement from folkloric pantheism to monotheism and what happens and the history of religion. And I was really interested in um, how certain gods seemed like they were all connected. They were all kind of similar versions, even though they were in different cultures and different places. And as I was writing my book on masculinity and ecology and trying to rewild the masculine, I was, I was thinking about how heroes, myths are like fruiting bodies. So mushrooms, just to slow down and give a little like fungal background, are not, mushrooms are not individuals. They're the fruiting body, like, you know, how a tree has apples on it. Mm -hmm. So mushrooms are like the apple of a tree and the tree is underground and it's filamentous hyphal cells that weave together plants and trees. And then when they want to sporulate and reproduce, they felt together and erupt above ground as mushrooms. So a mushroom looks like a dainty little individual, but it's actually connected to a much larger, older being below ground. And so when I was looking at myths like Jesus, Dionysus, Orpheus, Osiris, Addis, Adonis, all of these gods associated with vegetation, with dying and resurrecting, with soil, with, with fermentation and with wine... I started to think about them less as individuals and more as mushrooms from the same rhizomatic continuity below ground. And for me, what it shows us is that myths have to change and adapt. You know, when something, when a myth erupts in a different place, it suits, it, it arrives very particularly suited to the cultural context, the political situation, and to the ecological pressures. And so we can see that that's why Jesus, when he's erupting in Second Temple period Palestine, looks a little bit different than Dionysus in Crete during the late Bronze Age. But they're perhaps connected by a very similar body um, that lives under the soil in the underworld. Um, so this has been a way for me to kind of problematize, you know, our ideas of individuality and also our, our ideas of stories as staying the same. Um, yeah. Thank you for asking. Yeah. And we're definitely in a moment where we need new stories, right? Our old, yeah. stories, I mean, old structures are, are falling old, yeah. old ways of being. And so how, and maybe this is something you've thought about and can answer, but how do new stories form? Like, where do we look for the new story? Mm, that's interesting. And I, I would love to turn back the question and ask you what stories you've been connecting with and you've found nourishing recently. Um, I mean, I'll say, I'll give a very brief answer and I'd love to hear um, what you're connecting with. I think new stories are always some kind of molecular recombination of older, be older stories. And I, that's why I love the compost heap as metaphor, which is instead of trying to get rid of these 
ossified old stories? What if we throw them all in the heap and see what sprouts? That new stories come from a kind of anarchic vegetal decay process that then revises and refruits as something more suited to our particular moment. Um, so yeah, the compost heap for me has been a way of thinking about how to sprout new stories out of old ferment. I love that. And it gives a sense of freedom and flow because I think I love your term ossified. Like I think sometimes mm -hmm. when stories become too boxed in or structured, they become harder to relate to. And so, yeah, exactly. So like in our house, um, I have four children and Harry Potter has been um, the, the myth of the last year for us yeah. reading and watching. And, oh. and I love that. And I, I, so I think myth, in all its in in all its forms, it we see something of ourselves in it, and yeah. at different times. And I'm you know each time I I've watched those movies many times and read those books, I identify with different people in it. And so I think that that's some of the power of of story and these these larger stories that span span archetypes, span time. Um, I love to watch how my children identify with with different characters. Um, yeah, so so that's I mean, on a on a more pop culture level, that's what we've been watching. That's not pop culture. I mean, I here's something crazy. I don't talk about a lot. My parents worked for Scholastic, and at the time when Scholastic was buying J.K. Rowling's books, so I and before Harry Potter came out, the um, the editor who was working with Harry Potter sent the book to my dad and said, "Read this to your little girl and see if she connects with it." We don't know how it's going to do. <laughs> And he read me the first two chapters and I was like four and I was like more, more, more. And so for a very brief period of time, I got the books early, but then they got too popular and I couldn't get them early. But for me, I was, so I'm a survivor of complex um, abuse early on. And for me, those stories were like life-saving. Um, like they saved my life. Like they gave me, and I think it's what you were saying is they're ecosystems. They're not just a hero's journey. There's so many different characters to provide a biodiversity of, of embrace. You know, there's so many different perspectives to help cushion you as you process different types of experiences. And so growing up alongside those stories was not superficial or pop cultural. It was like so deep rooted. Like those stories are in my DNA. Um, yeah, it's amazing to hear, to think about kids getting to experience them for the first time. Yeah, it is. It, I mean, it is a really magical universe. And I, I love that idea of ecosystem. I even see it, um, you know, and people getting to identify or choose with their houses and what, you know, what really yeah. resonates with them may not resonate with me. And that <laughs> this idea of, of your connection to the world around you. I mean, you're really someone who more than most, I think, um, acknowledges the ecosystem that you're living in. And I wonder if you can talk about that and offer, you know, for someone listening who this may be, you know, new to them, right? You know, mycelium and the natural world, most people tend not to think about it that way, but a, a practice perhaps of how we can begin to connect. Well I have two very practical things that you can do. Okay. And then I have perhaps a little bit of a wider invitation. Two practical things that I do are, I well, I think that right now there's a um, problematic urge towards total knowledge. 
that to be an environmentalist, to be ecologically aware, you have to know everything. You have to know about all the charismatic causes, the koalas, the redwood trees, you know, that are a country away. But the truth is that you are planted where you are for a reason. And it's important to get to know the beings that constitute you because they really do. We are relationally constituted. We are breathing in microbiome, pheromones, hormones. Our carbon is going back into um, the ecosystem we're in to feed it. So it might be important to get to know those beings. So something I do every morning is I summon by name. And not it doesn't have to be a scientific name. It's a name that connotes intimacy and um, in relationships. So it could be a nickname. Every being that I know in a 10-mile radius, mountain, indigenous population, landform, fungi, microbe, um, sometimes it's just like a place that I really connect with. And so I summon them around me so that as I walk out into the day and into the land, I realize that every decision I make capillaries out to affect all those beings. And also I am constituted by them. They're witnessing me. They are helping me. They are part of my team and I'm part of their team. Um, And you can start by, you know, just perhaps you write down five beings, you know, maybe you have beavers nearby. Maybe there's clover, you know, you just, you know, maybe there's a lake you like to spend time at and you write those down. And so when you wake up, you just quietly say, okay, I'm just going to bring you into communion. And so I love that. I call it gathering council. Um, and that's something that I always offer is, is gather your counsel, um, and add to your counsel. You know, it's not about being perfect. It's more just about doing it in a way that feels relational and intimate. And the second is follow what you love. Not everybody is going to be the hero of everything. You know, pay attention to what you really care about, because that's going to be your portal into greater understanding. Maybe you really, really care about water and about water rights and watersheds, maybe black bears. Maybe you really care about thunderstorms, you know, because that's you don't need to know everything. You just need to know about one thing. And that thing will open for you and teach you quite a bit. Um, Yeah. So I guess, yeah, those are my two offerings of ways that we can just be in more aware, dynamic, interrogative relationship with our environments. Those are both really, really simple and powerful. So I love the idea of, you know, gathering counsel because for most people would think that's human, right? So, yeah. so it's when we can gather counsel from the non-human world, we're never alone. There's, and there's so much to learn everywhere we look. And then added to that, I love the idea of, you know, it can be very overwhelming. So I, you know, um, I have four teenagers and I think (laughs) people growing up um, in the world, this, this state that it is sometimes certain people can just be so overwhelmed. They shut down, right? If they can't fix anything, they can't do anything. And so the idea that, that we are each guided towards something we love. I mean, it's the same as you, you know, having to learn a difficult lesson, knowing that you love mycelium and then you had a, a mixed connective tissue disease. That's, that's one of those things that you go, Hmm, that's kind of interesting. You know, I'm a, I'm an ophthalmologist. So I was led towards studying vision in the eye and all of my mystical experiences have been with light and color. And, and so there are no mistakes. There are no, it's, things are less by chance, I think, than we often 
think they are at first glance. At first glance. I love it. Um, I just, it's so interesting that you're an ophthalmologist and that's kind of your mystical portal too. Cause I was, I've been researching how we see, cause it's so miraculous. It's so wild. And I'm sure, have you read John O'Donohue? I'm sure you have. I have. Yes. I, I can't I just, as an Adam Carr teacher. Me too. Yeah. I, it's like a book I return to every year. And I always think about how he talks about the hunger of color and the hunger of black and talks about sight and vision as being this like absolute um, mystical experience. Yeah, absolutely. And lately I've been really, you know, there is so much that we filter out. I mean, we see I know. Each, what we, what the brain chooses to acknowledge is about less than 1% of what we're seeing. And so I think that yeah. you were saying about, you know, go with what you love because yeah. your eye will be drawn to your particular task or way of connecting in the world. Uh, yeah. And that when we, you know, you also write, you've had so many fun and magical interactions with animals and that when we open ourselves and we, maybe we allow our vision to see, we invite relationship in ways that we can, that we couldn't have imagined. Yeah. You know, our mentors and our teachers don't necessarily look like we think they're going to. Um, that's been my big lesson is whenever I think that you know, something is going to look like it's supposed to, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask about, do you think in, in where we're at in the world, you know, mm -hmm. we're very human centric yeah. and maybe that's natural, you know, to, to think that you're the center of something. Um, yeah. But the way that you, look at the world is so unique to me because it, in the way you write, it feels as if you have found a way to be part of the whole without necessarily having, having to be say that the hero's journey or the center of the story. And can you talk about that? Hmm. I can try. Yeah. Um, I think that something that is a difficult and I'm trying to massage with my writing is that trauma for me gave me a perspective that is invaluable, but I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through the trauma and I wouldn't want to validate the trauma for having given me this perspective. So this is something I'm working on. And I wrote a piece called The Body as a Doorway, talking about how early trauma opens up your sensory gating and makes it hard to shut it down so that you can kind of be a little less sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, and how I problematized that in myself for a long time and tried to heal it and fix it. And then at a certain point I thought, okay, so what if I can't fix this and I can't change the past? What if it's my superpower? And so I think for me, it's, and here, this offering goes out to people. Who, a lot of people have this experience. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people have experienced different levels of trauma and abuse and are trying to understand how how to salvage a life afterwards. And instead of trying to just survive, what if you could um, use this as a superpower? You know, what if you, your dilation, your absolute racked attention to every detail made you more keenly aware of the teeming, prickling, stinging, wild animacy in everything around you? 
Um, and I don't think all of us have to do this. And I don't think all of us can sustain doing this all the time. You know, it's a, a huge amount of energy expenditure, both physically and emotionally. But I do think that we can all learn to oscillate between being more aware that we're not the main character and then needing to actually get in touch with the fact that we are, you know, inside of a culture as an individual and we have needs and we need to meet them. So it's about oscillation, I think, in and out. Um, and it can be hard to do, especially when, you know, people are navigating all sorts of different complex trauma and, and um, illness in their life. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and it, it can be, you know, I'm someone who, um, from when I was very young was told, you know, I'm very sensitive. Yeah. And so I, I agree that sometimes you look for, you know, I spent many years um, trying to create boundaries or to, so, so that, that idea of um, being really open and empathic and aware, um, uh, seeing that as a superpower is, is very freeing and, and yet, I think what you're saying, too, is that we have to also have compassion for ourselves. And and there are times that we're going to have to retreat back into ourselves in order to yeah. um, to center and, and energize ourselves again. Yeah, yeah. Every, I mean, I think that's, you know, the one thing I really believe is true. Everything else is subject to change. I'm just trying to change my mind all the time. The only thing I really believe is true is everything moves everything moves. If story is anything, it's just movement. Um, which is why I think story can belong to more than human beings and mostly does is because everything moves. Um, and so one state is never going to stay the same. It's always going to tilt towards something else. Um, so yeah, we're always moving. Yeah. I love that. And, and, you know, we, I have not always lived in Colorado. We've been here four years and yesterday, my husband and I were driving into the mountains and we were talking about story and how the story of the mountain is very different than the story of he and I, or the story of the grass and, yeah. and in the sense of linear time and how time spirals. But as, you know, as humans, we tend to think in hundred year increments where these mountains, there's a totally different temporal timeline. And, yeah. and there's some, I don't know, there's some solace in that. That would be deeply comforting. Yeah. Whatever's happening on the human surface. And when we get really fraught with our human problems, those mountains will be there. Yeah. And, and maybe, um, yeah. So, so, so that idea, that idea of story and, and constant change is really interesting to me too. What stories or myths are rising for you to explore these days? Well, I've had my long-term love affairs and I've had my myths set out that I want, you know, I think of myself primarily as a fiction writer. And it's interesting that I've become more known for my essays and my kind of nonfiction because I often, I really just want to pour myself into like long format textured historical fiction. Um, and the myth that I'm really, really interested in, well, it's a kind of, it's an ecosystem of myths and it's what I went to college to study is um, the story of Tristan and Isolde, which is the proto-Arthurian myths and leads, leads to the Arthurian myths. Um, and then the story of Merlin and the myths of Merlin um, that kind of acts as a rhizomatic connection between the Tristan myths and um, the Arthurian myths. And so I think that's, my hope is, so I've been doing a lot of nonfiction writing 
which is about, you know, ecological storytelling, thinking like, you know, a swarm, thinking like a grasshopper, thinking like um, a Wolbachia bacteria. But the next story that I really want to pour myself into is the story of Tristan as old, but it will, it will take actually going to the land where that story was born, which is Cornwall in England and spending some time there to be able to get the consent from the land to be able to bring it into being. Yeah. So hopefully that will, that will happen. Um, yeah. Wow. And what about that story is calling you? Can you share a little bit about that myth for those listening? Who yeah. Don't? It's, um, well, What's calling me about it? I don't know. I know that the first time I heard about it, the first time I saw the kind of silly um, movie of it, I was obsessed. It just clicked. It was the story. Um, I, I, I really truly believe that we need love stories, love stories that are, are bigger than the human and the eros and that, you know, our cells want to touch each other, that light fastens into our eyes. Even light is haptic. Everything is haptic, haptic meaning to touch and to fasten, meaning that when you touch something, you become part of it. And so for me, love stories are the healing that we need right now. Big, ecological, huge, wild love stories. And Tristan is old is, is pretty much, you know, the original Arthurian love story which is a, you know, a young Cornish knight um, accidentally falls in love with an Irish princess that he then unfortunately wins to be the queen of his king, who he is deeply loyal to and creates this very complicated love triangle. But what I think is much more interesting is the tension between this kind of pre-Christian pagan um, Irish culture, where Azold, the princess comes from, and Tristan, being this kind of liminal figure who's always in boats. He's actually always like moving. He's never actually on one landscape as being the kind of go-between and then England and King Mark being this, you know, Christianized male-based solar culture. Um, so I think it's a great place to examine the tensions between those, um, those different experiences and mindsets. And what an adventure it will be for you to <laughs> write from the land. And hopefully you'll get over to Ireland as well. I've spent yeah. much time Yeah. Ooh, I wish I, where should I visit in Ireland? Oh, I mean, my, uh, my parents are from Ireland. So I spent my summers there. Um, wow. And my, my experience growing up in Ireland was very um, small. It was, it was where I learned to really fall in love with land and landscape and mm -hmm. mushrooms, we would pick mushrooms every morning. They would grow mm -hmm. very, um, very beautifully there. And then as I've gotten older, I've explored, you know, the coastline and um, all of it is just, it's its one of my Anamkara places. It's definitely mm -hmm. where my soul feels very happy. And so it'll be, I think that if you can to write, especially, you know, if the origin of myth was from that part of the world to be there while writing is really exciting. Yeah. That's really important to me. I mean, I wrote this book that was set in Second Temple period Palestine, you know, Israel, but it was after having spent time there and having family there. So I do think it's important to have some kind of a rooting in the texture. I mean, that's so important to me. My favorite stories have a sensual scaffolding. You can taste them. You can smell them. There are beings inside of them, trees and fruits. And yeah, so that's a really important part of storytelling for me. I'm so excited to read um, your your historical fiction book coming out because your essays really like drip with that sense of description and smell and taste and color. And 
So it'll be really fun to see um, as you imagine, as you imagine up fiction. It'll be wonderful. I Thank can't you. Wait. When is that book coming out? Um, well, publishing is always very fickle and fun. Yes. So it's supposed to come out in spring 2023. It's totally done. It's off inside the shoots, but you never know. Um, it could be sooner or I don't think it'll be sooner. I think spring 2023 because my book of essays is coming out in the fall. So it's pretty quick to have another book come out. Um, it will be a little bit of a time, but I will enjoy it. Hopefully. You. Absolutely. Um, this podcast is called Wholehearted Healer, and I yeah. came to that after a time in my own life of um, feeling very compressed and two-dimensional and, and having um, some trauma and some stressful situations kind of crack me open to, to yeah. almost feel spacious and able to be what I would like what I call wholehearted it's two-dimensional versus multi or whole wholly dimensional and um, I know that you have had your share of um, things with with illness and so I wonder if you can speak to that how how you live from a sense of spaciousness or wholeheartedness um, even as things are uncertain and diagnoses may be tough. If you can speak to that. Thanks. Um, and I love that. I love that dilation, that opening. Um, yeah, I think that two things. One is that I've, because I don't know how long I'm going to be here for, or what the timeline is. I have to think about my life as making good soil for other beings, that it's less about me completing something for my own ego. And it has to be more about me creating, um, nourishment. That's not just for me. Um, so, you know, I have like a list of my projects written down and ideas. So if I don't make it, maybe someone else could come and take them over, which is actually a more historically, um, that's actually how storytelling happened until very recently, until the last 2000 years, you know, authorship as an individual pursuit is relatively recent concept. It used to be that people stepped into the, the role of Homer. You know, the Orphic hymns were written by many different people. So for me, that's helpful is thinking about how can I add to the general aliveness while not being fixated on my own aliveness? And that can be comforting in moments when I feel stressed about needing to do things in a certain time period, needing to act against my actual reserves of energy. Um, but the, the real answer, which is slightly mushier, is that so I've had experiences that I think of as bottlenecks, like, you know, not everything comes through, you know, moments where it looked like I was going to die, where I had anaphylactic shock, my heart started to stop. It, it was, you know, moments that were where I thought I was going to die. And the only thing that came through those bottlenecks were the things I really, really cared about. And so I'm really grateful for those moments that got me close to my desire. And I think that desire is underrated. I think that our, our true desires lead us to our ecological niche. And like a bee that's going to the flower it wants to drink like a nectar from will incidentally pollinate things. That if we get close to our desire, our true desires, they're going to lead us into that place on the landscape that needs us. Um, so for me, the way I handle illness is by thinking about 
how is this illness shaving me down to my most um, coherent desire? Because if I can get in touch with that thin wire of need and longing and yearning, I might actually put myself in the right place. That response is so, I always notice when I feel a shift in my own energy and those listening may have felt that it was very generative in a, in a sense of um, like true feminine, right? This idea of like that your stories or even the ideas for your stories are a way of mothering the world. Like that you, that you can, um, it was just really beautiful. And it's such a, it's such a, um, you know, in a world that is often, you know, we're, we're forced or we're asked to think positive all the time and it's very solar, it's very forward moving and achievement oriented. Um, that's just such a beautiful sentiment that, that your ideas may pollinate the ideas of others. It's generous and generative. And so thank you for for sharing that and for those listening who you know may not be dealing with a life-threatening illness it's a uh, sometimes you know it it seems in our world it takes those big i always call them the two by fours from the universe to kind of give us that clarity and to say okay all of this none of this matters what matters what really matters and yeah. um i think your writing is is a gift in that it it may help us when we're not Thankfully, when we're in between the two by fours to remember to rem- like, you know, a lot for me is, is I think the guides among us, the storytellers, the, the healers are like Ram Dass says, we're all walking each other home and, and, mm. and being sort of a light or a, a guidepost to help people remember, I think is something that really comes through that resonates for me when I read your essays and when I I'm excited to read your upcoming books. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Well, thank you. I mean, to be very honest, I started sharing this writing publicly because I was in a really tough spot. Um, And so I am also nourished and made into being by you and by the people who have reached out when I've reached out. And it's a two-way flow. It's not just, you know, it's not unidirectional. It's, it's reciprocal. So I've been kept alive by this experience of sharing work. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And in that way, really, we're this giant mycelium network, right? Exactly. Yeah. That it's, that it's through our relationship that really these sacred energy transfers or moments of aliveness happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I really, I thank you for your time, Sophie. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd love to touch upon? Oh, I think we're good. Um, yeah. Um, oh, I, I'll, I'll leave this with this one thing, um, which is a question. Um, I, and I think it's always good to have something you don't know about. I am really curious about potato bugs today or stink bugs, stink bugs, because I have two in my home and they seem to have really intense personalities. And (laughs) I've been doing all this research about them, trying to figure out like, what's the mythology? Like, what's their story? And I can find nothing. (laughs) And so I guess the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll end with is humor, which is that the more than human world has a good sense of humor. And if you start interacting with it, your days are going to get a lot funnier. (laughs) Um, so I'm like spending all day just being like, what are you trying to tell me? Um, so yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So look for look for um, the messengers who are coming your way and get curious and yeah. the humor. I love that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. thank you so much. Your presence is luminous. I'm so grateful um, for your work in the world, and I'm so grateful for more people to read your work because I think it is it is a medicine for the moment. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm.